Hey everybody, I'm Greg Soule and this is Why Am I, a podcast where I talk to interesting people and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go around is Sam Knuth. Sam is a longtime techie, currently a senior director at Red Hat, where I happen to work right now, possibly a dog owner at this point, we'll see, uh, an author of awesome ideas, and he's also been diagnosed with autism. It's obvious he's done a lot of study and reflection in general, but he doesn't hold this knowledge inside just for himself. Rather, he takes the time to break down individual concepts so that it's ingestible by anyone. I hope you join me with curiosity in this conversation with Sam. Sam Knuth, I said that correct, right? Yeah, perfect. All right. Thank you for joining me on the YMI podcast. Hey, thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> All right. So the way this thing starts is you and I are, so are you a dog person? I'm going to start with that. I'm actually driving tomorrow to adopt a dog with my family for the first time. So I would, I would normally say no, but I think I'm, I've, I will be shortly Soon to be a dog person. <laughs> All right. See, so you didn't realize I've been peeking in your windows for the last week, right? Gathering evidence. No, no, no. So uh, the premise here is you and I are at the dog park. You've got your new dog and we're sitting there and we're watching our dogs run around and have a good time. So we start up a conversation as one is wont to do. And uh, I tell you about me and I'm very boring. So we get through that portion of it, that painful portion very quickly. And now it's your turn to reciprocate. So Sam, who are you? Oh boy. Yeah, that is uh, a big question. I mean, normally if I was in the dog park, I, we probably wouldn't end up having a conversation because I'd be kind of averting my eyes to, to avoid uh, talking to people because um, I tend to be quite uh, introverted. Um, so I am, jeez, uh, th that's that's a big question when you ask it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I am, I guess I'll, I'll just say I am uh, a person who's from uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's where I, where I was born and raised. Uh, then I moved around a bunch um, as an adult, kind of took my time finding my focus uh, and ended up somehow at Red Hat and kind of getting into computers where I've built a career at Red Hat that was much different than anything I ever imagined um, until it was happening. Um, and I'm living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, where I've been for most of the last 20 years. All right. So you went from like one temperature extreme to the next, huh? Yeah. Well, Santa Fe is not uh, not hot. It's it's actually just, just perfect. It's in the mountains. And a lot of people think it... it might be hotter than it is, but it's it's pretty much per, for perfect seasons. Um, but uh, but I have traded it for a much harsher climate. I would say yes, <laughs> <laughs> more conducive to uh, staying inside most of the time. I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you started in Santa Fe. Uh, I assume you stayed there for what? Like till you were what? 15, 16, 18, somewhere in the neighborhood. 19. Yeah, I left when I was 19 uh, and went to college, started my college career in Los Angeles. Really? College in L.A.? Wow. So how big, how big a, like, a, a town, like a community is Santa Fe? Were you like 
in your school, were you like one of like a hundred people in your graduating class or? 2000, one of 2000 Whoa. in my uh, high school class. You know, it's about, um, it's about a hundred thousand people in Santa Fe, probably a little bit less when I was there. Um, but at the time we, we had one high school and the second high school had just opened up. So, um, but yeah, 2000, 2000 kids. Yeah. That's pretty, well, that's more than I had anticipated. I was just thinking yeah. you said you were shy and introverted and then all of a sudden 19 year old Sam finds himself in LA and there's a lot of people in LA. So was that a bit yeah. of a culture shock for you making the switch? Oh, totally, totally. And I was, I was at the university of South, uh, Southern California, which is, um, South of downtown, and this was in the mid nineties. Um, and yeah, I mean, I went from like this sort of mountain desert, uh, small city kind of paradise type of place to like really like dense pollution, traffic, <laughs> uh, just concrete, um, you know, mess everywhere. And it was, uh, it was an extreme culture shock. Yeah. It didn't go that well. Actually, I kind of had, a, I freaked out a bit. Um, and, uh, I ended up within the first couple of months, I was like frantically filling out transfer applications to, <laughs> to, to schools, mostly in small rural locations, because I was like totally not into, uh, whatever I was uh, experiencing in, in, uh, South Los Angeles. Yeah. Did you, did you survive the college experience there the entire time or did you switch colleges? Did the transfer happen? Yeah, I did transfer uh, after that first year to Middlebury College in uh, Vermont, um, which uh, I had never been to, didn't visit before I showed up, and it just seemed like <laughs> it just seemed like the place that was the most different from from where I was. Uh, and so I was like, I just want to apply to places that are extremely different from where I am. Um, and I got in, and I went. Yeah. So that seems to me, that seems incongruous with somebody who's shy and introverted. You go to LA and you're like, I got to get out of here. So let me go to a place completely across the country where I've never been. I don't know anybody. That seems, uh, it seems a bit brave to me. Well, you know, I, I, it's interesting because I didn't really, I don't know if I thought about it like that. I thought it was more like I was, um, I was just reacting to, I mean, I think actually part of it um, is that I, I didn't have a lot of self-awareness uh, at the time, but I, I knew that whatever was happening in Los Angeles was just not a good thing. Like, I just felt like this is not right. I'm not fitting here. Hmm. Uh, I, I think I really felt like I didn't fit. Like, I didn't belong. I didn't understand what was happening. Um, and I think I and I I had wanted to study. Uh, I, I went for their music uh, program, particular music program, which I, I then realized once I saw the level of talent in all the other, uh, music students, I realized that like, whoa, I was a little off my mark here. Um, and, uh, I, f I felt pretty inadequate, uh, in terms of my abilities, uh, to finish the program. And so I was really just looking, I, I, I mean, maybe I was really looking for an escape. I don't know. I don't know if I phrased it, if I would have phrased it that way in my time at the time, but I was kind of like, I kind of feel like I was like running away from mm. whatever was happening. So I felt like it was kind of in line with my, like, I'm just not 
meshing with this. I'm not fitting in here, uh, whatever this is. So that feeling of not meshing or fitting in, was it like an emotional thing or just like, like a physical response that you didn't necessarily have your finger on? Both. Both. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were very tangible aspects. Like it was hard for me to meet people. Um, I wasn't really, I didn't feel like I had, uh, I didn't like relate to the people I was living with. I was in an apartment, um, off campus cause the dorms were full. So they put a, they put a bunch of us in like these apartments, uh, which is just a, you know, it, it, it just, yeah. And then I didn't even know like sort of how to do basic life, you know, like <laughs> grocery shopping and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and then also just, yeah, emotionally, I just felt, uh, unsettled, I think. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a rough place to be. So were there physical manifestations of these feelings? Like, did you get like extreme anxiety or like, did it make you feel like, I mean, cause it seems like, uh, like you said, you had trouble uh, making friends with people. And to me, like if I'm in this scenario where I feel terrified, it makes me want to shrink away from people even more, which exacerbates the problem. So were there kind of physical manifestations in that way? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I did have a lot of anxiety and, you know, later I would actually be diagnosed with anxiety among other things. But at that time I didn't, you know, I didn't have that level. Uh, I didn't have those words for it. Like, so I didn't, I didn't really know what was happening. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, anxiety. Um, and I started doing things like I was, I uh, started fasting um, and like experimenting with different things like that and just trying to like, um, well, I was doing things to kind of, I guess, maybe test myself. I started running a bit, which I had never <laughs> done before um, <laughs> and just doing different things to kind of like maybe uh, push my body a little bit. Um, and and maybe I, th I think that was actually just a manifestation of some of the um, anxiety I was feeling and not knowing how to channel and not knowing what to do with it. Yeah. Golly. So you're, you're there, you're alone, you're lost. And so you're trying all this experimentation. Yeah. Like why wasn't, I mean, and I, I know why this is true for me here in the South and, and kind of the environment I grew up in, but why do you think it was that it never occurred to you to like, Hey, maybe Maybe this is something I could find some help with. Maybe, you know, therapy or, you know, just anybody. Maybe go to the doctor and talk to him about this stuff. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's the mid-90s. Uh, I feel like we're in a different place now hmm. with mental health awareness and acceptance than we were then. So I feel like at that point... I mean, at that point is when you were just starting. I, I remember actually my, my dad um, was, uh, my dad had been going through some some uh, depression uh, uh, work. And he, I think he had been taking Prozac at the time and was, and was reading a bunch of books about it. There was a big backlash coming at that time uh, against Prozac, which was really the only SSRI I think that was, if I'm remembering right, it was really the only one that was out there. Um, so I think mental health treatment was in a different place. Stigma was was in a different place. And so I just don't feel like it was the kind of thing where 
it would occur to people certainly didn't occur to me as like a healthy thing to do to like you know get some help like that it it felt more like that would be a a negative thing of sort of like admitting that you had that kind of that you were having challenges like that but plus i don't think i just don't think i had enough self-awareness to even get it together to like think about going to a doctor for any reason <laughs> you know i mean it was like this just wasn't happening at the time yeah so it's like you were just in survival mode just trying yeah, to totally. stay alive yeah. I, yeah exactly totally yeah and i like i i, I think i echo a lot of the sentiments you had as, as growing up you know um there was a, a real strong stigma here in the south for sure um part of that around you know masculinity and mm -hmm. you can't be perceived as weak. Part of it being, um, uh, if you go to the doctor, you're going to be labeled as unstable or crazy person, or that's the person that has yep. the psychiatrist. You know, and so it's, which is so ironic, you know, thinking about, you know, if, uh, you know, I, I break my arm and the bone sticking out, do I just say, oh, maybe, maybe you should stop bleeding. You know, maybe you should try just not being hurt. You know, it's like, no, we go to the doctor, we get help, right? We ask somebody to help us. And, you know, when other yeah. parts of our life are out of our control, why is it so scary to to go and ask for help from somebody? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think we've made, it's funny though that you use that analogy because I was, I was thinking of that analogy really just, I remember I was actually in a leadership development program in 2019. So just a, just a few years ago where I ended up, I think I, I almost had this exact same conversation with a group of very senior leaders in this, in this program, because I felt like we still weren't getting it. And there was, there's, there was a, somebody in the, in the program had actually broken a leg recently in like a skiing accident or something, you know, had a cast and there was just so much, um, outpouring of like sympathy and like, you know, understanding and accommodation right. for this right. person who's in a cast. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> yeah, if somebody has like, you know, a mental health diagnosis, they do not get that level of sympathy and understanding and empathy <laughs> and, oh, how can I adjust my behavior to help you? You know, like, let me get the door for you or whatever. Um, and so I really was just thinking about that a lot. And I guess it's funny that I was thinking about that in 2019 because it's like that's still that was right before I so I I've be, shortly after that I went I became public about my mental health uh, and and neurodivergent diagnoses, um, but at that point I still hadn't been, and I think that was one of the things that really got to me. It's like yeah, you know, if somebody has like a broken leg, they don't first of all they don't try and hide it. Um, and <laughs> second of all, they don't feel shame for it unless maybe they did something really embarrassing that, you know, resulted in it. But even then, you know, they're, they're you know, um, and so it was kind of like, why shouldn't I be more open about this? And why can't we talk about this? Um, and why, and why couldn't I get the same kind of, I don't know, response? So yeah, there's definitely something to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know. And, and I'd love for you to expand upon this stuff, but um, I think there's, again, it comes back to that stigma. Like, so if you're filing for a job application and you put, uh, I've got diabetes, right? You're not going to just be categorized in some, you know, 
tangible way in this person's mind. Whereas if you say I'm autistic or I've got this disability or, you know, like I've got this impact, you know, then I think it, I think it is scarier to, um, to announce that to the world. Right. And, you know, cause it, sometimes it can feel dangerous or I don't know how this person is going to perceive it. Right. And I've had to protect myself with this information for so long. So I definitely, uh, to me, it's like the brave new frontier when folks like yourself do come out and are so vocal about it and, and honestly open enough to come into, uh, you know, a conversation like this with another person. Yeah. I think about that a lot because I've had a really <clears throat> positive experience disclosing um my so i i i am an autistic person late diagnosed autistic person and before that i was i was diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and a couple other things that i that that i had written about um and it's uh but the thing that so <laughs> the thing is i didn't share any of that until I was in a relatively senior role at Red Hat, and I had been uh, at Red Hat, my my current company, for uh, about fifteen years already. Oh, wow. And so I felt like I had a lot of security and a lot of support. <clears throat> um, but thinking on it, like you know, I had my my uh, mental health diagnoses, um, I think in 2001, um, and I didn't disclose them at work until 2019. And so, you know, that's a pretty big gap, right? Like I, uh, I don't, I think there's a reason that I didn't do it sooner. And partially it's like, I, I don't think it's actually, um, safe safe for a lot of people to do it. And that's, that's why it's really important to me now to be really open and to have conversations because I think that, um, you know, it's sort of like, it's, e it's much easier to do after you've achieved a certain level or, or a certain accomplishment or a certain place. And then, you know, people will have different reactions. But if you, <clears throat> I think if you disclose early, it could actually shape people's impression of you. Mm. And, you know, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have gotten a certain opportunity if my boss had known that I had a particular mental health condition, because maybe in their head, they would have a negative association with that, or they would have some stereotype. Um, or if not my boss, maybe their boss might have to approve uh, you know, a promotion or, or a leadership opportunity and might be hesitant to do that. Uh, if, if I was open about, uh, about these things at that time. So I do think about a lot, like, I think it's important to disclose, but I also think that I have a lot of privilege in who I am and, and where I am in my career that enables me, uh, to do that. And at this point, I feel like, yeah, I really have nothing to lose. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of people. So I have nothing to lose. What does that mean? You have nothing to lose? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I do, I do think that's literally true because I just, um, in my career, 
I've achieved more than I ever set out to achieve. Uh, and I, I kind of feel like I never imagined that I would have as much as I have uh, in terms of where I've gotten in my career and and the stability that, that I have in my life and my family. Um, and so I just feel really fortunate and, and really lucky. And, you know, at this point, I feel like I have the privilege to make decisions of like, okay, if I, if I do this thing, um, you know, like tell the world that I'm a late diagnosed autistic person and there's like a negative consequence on my career, I don't care. To me, it's more important to be open um, and hopefully to advocate and, and help support others than it is to uh, sort of do what I think I have to do for the benefit of my career. Whereas earlier, uh, when I didn't feel that way, I would say, you know what, whatever I have to gain from disclosing my conditions is outweighed by whatever I have to lose uh, in terms of like my ability to keep building my career and, and, and achieve those goals. But, you know, at some point in the past few years, probably, you know, coinciding with the pandemic and just the, the massive uh, realignment of priorities that that caused, um, I've just sort of, it's, it's really prompted me to rethink my priorities and, and, and really confirmed for me that like, you know, I got to focus on what I feel like is more, uh, important and true to my values. And, you know, I, I think that that's not always going to be putting my best interests from a sort of professional or political standpoint first. Right. And, and frankly, when you're in a leadership role, I think there is a political aspect of it for mm -hmm. sure. Um, that, that a lot of people pay attention to, um, uh, very closely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally get like all of that. Like the idea that first, if I prove to them that I am uh, capable, you know, I yeah. deserve to be in this spot and then, oh, by the way, this is also who I am, then it doesn't color the way they perceive you or theoretically the performance you may have. You could say, I've done all of this while. So I, I totally get the idea of, of not necessarily feeling comfortable um, right off the bat. And I've, I've actually got a, a personal experience. So I was a people manager for like ever, ever and ever. And oh. it's probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever done is to be able to mentor, uh, especially young engineers as they come up. And I, I love to see the little birds spread their wings and fly away. Like as much as I hate to see people go, I love to see them flourish. You know, it just it does so much for me personally. Um, and I had probably my single most talented, not probably absolutely my single most talented engineer I ever had, you know, we would, um, we would run into problems where, uh, you know, we'd have projects that needed to be completed and there were multiple steps and, um, it was just follow through and completion and, um, you know, making sure all of the boxes got ticked and things like that. We would, would have problems and, uh, I never approached it. I don't know if this was the right way or the wrong way, but I never approached it like, hey, you're doing these things wrong. It was always, hey, do you have the right tools? Hey, what methods are we trying to approach these things with? You know, it was like, maybe let's try this. You know, and a lot of it was accountability systems because I told them, um, you know, when you leave me, 
I'm not going to be your, you know, your uh, PAA, your personal analog assistant. I'm not going to be able to be here to remind you and check in. Right? So we got to develop a strategy that works for you. And so we tried lots of different things and we ended up settling on one that, that truly worked for them. Um, long story short, it was like two and a half cool. years later, uh, we were at uh, an event and I happened to meet his mom. She was there and she was just talking to me about him. And um, within five minutes, she told me how he was autistic. And, um, you know, and in the very specific ways he was, and it was so crazy. I had almost like this galaxy brain moment because I just looked through that lens backwards at all the things, all the trials and tribulations and all of the back, you know, it's like all the strategies we had to go to. And it's like, I, I get it. Like all of it makes sense now. And I was also like of two minds. I was thinking, you know, had I known that up front, we could have addressed these things head on, you know, but also at upfront, he didn't know me, right? He didn't know if he could trust me. And also yeah. looking back, I don't know that that wouldn't have colored the way I looked at him and his performance from then on. Like I, I honestly, cause I'm not in that position to repeat it. And I honestly don't know. I like to, I would hope that I would have used the same strategies, right? With patience and approaching uh, you know, with like, how do we, how do we figure this out? This is a puzzle. Let's figure it out. Um, but yeah. I totally understand that. And, um, I don't know that he had told anybody else and it wasn't my, you know, it wasn't my story to tell. So I wasn't going to, but yeah, well, this is so interesting. This is a great, great example. I love, love the story. And <clears throat> I think you did, I think you totally did the right thing. And it sounds like you're a really good, uh, people manager, you know, a couple aspects of that. First of all, um, the kinds of challenges that you're talking about are very common among neurodivergent people. Uh, and we generally call that challenges with executive function um, is, is kind of the way people refer to that. And a lot of times it's about the structure, having the right uh, accountability mechanisms or the right uh you know, pathway charted out, just the right structure to kind of get you from point A to point B. Um, and a lot of folks are extremely capable, but maybe just have a little bit of trouble navigating the path. And it's like, if you have a little bit of support, you can go, you can do it, you can get there. Um, but if you don't have that support, it's like you're trying to drive through a town of windy streets and like, you know where you're going, but you don't know, you know, you don't know the streets and you don't have a map and you're just like driving around in circles. Um, and so the way you handled that, I think is, is really great because I think that's the best thing to do is to just work with the individual to say, Hey, let's figure out what, what works best. And as the manager, you have observations about where the problems are the person might be aware of them. They might actually not be aware of them. You know, they, they, they might just feel like I know I'm failing, but I don't know why I'm failing and I don't know exactly how I'm failing. And so for you to be able to articulate, you know, Hey, I think this person has all these great qualities, but they're having trouble with, you know, this piece of getting this thing over the line, or they just need to like put it in this format and send it to me. Um, you know, the, those things are really, uh, really insightful and can, and can be really helpful and just approaching it in terms of like, Hey, let's make a plan together, uh, for how we're going to work. 
Um, you know, how about I check in with you a couple times a week? Maybe these are the questions that I'll ask you. Uh, this is what I'd like to see, you know, by Friday or by next Wednesday or whatever, you know, sort of get anything you can do to kind of add that structure, I think is really helpful. And then it's really interesting that you found out later that, that the person was autistic because I think, first of all, what, one of the big things that we talk about when we talk about, um, acceptance of or or accommodations for neurodivergent people is really there's nothing there's no like accommodation for neurodivergent people that would not be appreciated by anybody mm. uh and so the first thing i say is like you know you don't have to know that someone has a diagnosis you, you don't have to wait for someone to disclose if you're a manager, you could just sit down with any employee and say, hey, let's make a plan for how we work best together. You know, let's let's make a plan for um, so that you understand what my expectations are and I understand how you're going to hold yourself accountable for those expectations uh, or what support you need from me uh, to meet those expectations. Um, and so but the fact that his mom told you <laughs> This is a this is a whole other issue, you know, to be honest. It's not her story to tell any more than yeah. it's your story to tell, right? So I would say I would say, you know what, this is a challenge that a lot of autistic adults and a lot of neurodivergent adults have with their parents. Um, is that a lot of parents uh will sort of do those those kinds of disclosures or um you know, have their own emotions about the condition that their that their child has and those are can often be problematic and and there's a there's a, some very different perspectives between how parents feel about things mm -hmm. and and how their children feel about things and it's one thing when your child is a child but when your child is an adult it becomes a very different thing and so there's mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of discussion in the neurodivergent communities that I've observed on this topic um, and and sort of like the different perceptions, um, especially as you have more and more autistic people and other neurodivergent people who are um, coming into it to adulthood and and sort of claiming their independence in in ways that uh, was not true uh, in the past. Um, uh, and, and that, that people didn't do. So I think that's, that's a, that's an interesting thing. And I wonder, I, I would also wonder if the person from the beginning had said, Hey, I'm autistic. Would you have had whatever stereotypes you have in your head or that you might not even be aware of, of what an autistic person is, you know, would that have lowered your expectations and maybe like what I would worry about is that instead of just saying, okay, how do we figure out the right support system for this employee? You might say, okay, well, this, this employee is great, but they're autistic. And so they're probably never going to be able to, you know, get this thing over the line. Um, or they're probably never going to be able to operate fully independently, uh, or something like that. Uh, and you might not have, you might not have tried, you know, I mean, I don't know you know, no, I guess, I guess you, you, you never know, but I, that's what I worry about 
is that there are a lot of stereotypes out there um, that are largely ill-informed. Um, and so, so I, I do, that's, you know, bringing it back to the whole disclosure question, it is risky. Uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty that people have. And, and I've heard, unfortunately, a lot of people have shared with me that they have had negative experiences um, when they've disclosed uh, and in, including, you know, being completely derailed from from a role and, and having to leave a company. Um, so I, I think that people, I think that the risk is very real for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can absolutely understand that. It, like think of the hiring process. You know, a lot of times if you open up a, a spot, you're going to get a hundred candidates, right? And so there's always a fear. I don't want to put anything on there that could potentially eliminate me from that because it is so hard like to get over here, get over there. I got to tell you, getting into Red Hat was the hardest grind I've ever, it was the longest yeah. nine months of my life getting into this place. But it's, you wow. know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a bit of Shangri-La, a bit of Utopia once I'm in here. I love this place. Um Truly and it's funny because I, I, you know, I do hear that. I and I, so for for many years, I I had an organization of hundreds of people um, that I was responsible for, and so we did a lot of hiring. And I I definitely heard that feedback. You know that it it like that our interview process was like really hard. Um, and, you know, the way I used to think about that was, well, you know, that's that's good because we we have certain standards or we or we have certain expectations. We want to make sure people know what they're getting into. Right. Um, and but I've since really changed my perspective on that now that I've gone through my own experiences and self-reflection. And, and I've realized, like, you know, we do have to be really careful that we're that we're putting people through too much in the interview process, which first of all, could eliminate a lot of people just based on different, all kinds of different elements of, of diversity. Um, and it really reinforces the idea that we're looking for a certain kind of person. And, you know, that is where I think more and more people are having the realization that if you are looking for a certain kind of person, to hire and you kind of think of it as like a cultural fit for your organization that, you know, there's a good chance that that person who's a good cultural fit also demographically is similar to you. Um, and so that is a real challenge that we need to work on. So I, I think that actually imp making improvements to making the hiring process more um, inclusive so that you know, you, so that people who get hired don't say, you know, that's the hardest experience I've ever had in my career. Um, that's definitely a goal of mine for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate enough to know a couple of people on the inside. So, um, yeah. just through having real candid conversations with them, I, I knew this is the place I would, I wanted to be. And, uh, it's one of those things that I wouldn't say it out loud because, I didn't want to be disappointed if it didn't come to fruition. You know, it's one of those, I guess you would almost call that a superstition. Um, but uh, I would say yeah. that I was cautiously optimistic the entire time, but I knew it's the direction I wanted to move in and um, persevered. And it, uh, it, you know, what's so funny is now that I'm on the inside, all I want to do is grab the best talent I can find and bring them in. All the people that I've worked with 
that were so yeah. talented. And I think that's a lot of what Red Hat is. It's like, um, if you've worked with really good people, you want to continue to work with really good people and surrounded by good people. Um, you know, and also I found inside of Red Hat, uh, there are some amazingly talented people in here. Holy cow. Um, from all different walks of life, all different uh, personality types. They're all at different stages of life. Um, somebody once told me uh, that uh, I never want to be the smartest guy in the room because I'll have nothing to learn. And I realized upon entering Red Hat, well, that's not a problem for me. I will never be the smartest guy in the room. I love it. So I'm constantly learning in this environment. Yeah, I agree. And I and I think that I, I think if anything, it you know, we do we do tend to to be a group of people who want to learn. Um and I and I think that's a quality we seek out in folks. And and I think people do challenge each other. And I hear from a lot of people that just being around people who are so engaged, um, you know, intellectually is, uh, is a big benefit of, of working here. Um, and so I think that's great. Uh, but I do think we have to put in more, um, thought into how that's manifest and how we, how we identify those characteristics uh, in people and, and what biases we might have, um, in terms of like, you know, you can imagine people have certain, people might have certain, uh, unconscious biases about what kind of person, you know, would thrive in that environment. Um, and, and not everyone would thrive, right? I mean, there, there's a fair, there's a fair point to that. Um, you know, something that one person finds really stimulating and engaging, another person might find really intimidating and, and scary. Um, and so is that, is that okay? Um, and we, and the people who find it scary, we just don't want those people. Um, or do we want to make it, um, you know, do we want to make it so that different people who approach, uh, dynamics like that differently, uh, can, can find a place and contribute here effectively. So, uh, you know, I think these are the, I think these are the kind of questions that, that we need to wrestle with, um, as a company. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I've, it's funny for me, I had kind of a renaissance around my 30 year mark. So I've always been a technical person, much like probably everybody else inside of, well, you know, virtually everybody else inside of Red Hat. And so, um, for my entire career, I've studied, I've done certifications, I've maintained certifications for nearly mm. two decades and, you know, it was always straightforward for me. Like it, I, it was, it was obvious that I would grab a technical manual and I would learn a new technical thing. But for some reason it never occurred to me that I could grab a book or a resource or another person and learn more about, um, my personality or other personalities or, uh, you know, how to be better or do better as a human. I don't know why that we always have so much emphasis on, hey, we can gain technical knowledge, but we never think about improving our like emotional IQ, you know, or, or things like that. Do you feel like Red Hat is, to me, I don't know, Red Hat is this unicorn. It's unlike any place I've ever worked. So this is like a loaded question for me because you, the answer is a resounding yes. But do you feel like Red Hat is really moving forward in kind of, you know, more education in like neurodiversity or, or various things like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, no question. I think that I think I feel very lucky to be in a place that has so many uh, supportive and curious and understanding leaders. And I and I just feel like has that in our DNA. And honestly, yeah, what you describe about like, you know, curiosity about technical subjects versus curiosity about like human subjects. Um, I think a lot of people are having that realization and that's what led me to ultimately um, seek out an assessment for, for autism is, you know, it was really the, the, the combination of the pandemic and, um, and the murder of George, George Floyd, which happened just a few miles from my house um, is, you know, it really made me realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff about the world that I'm living in every day that I do not understand or appreciate. Um, and I need to figure that out. So like, you know, I mean, before yeah, like early in my career, yeah, like what, you know, I was diving through technical books that had tutorials and like, you know, figuring stuff out and then as I moved into leadership roles, that changed to like I'd be tearing through the latest business books and just like really geeking out on like, you know, business books. And it's all about like strategy and um, and uh, other really sort of practical things. But then what I found is like those books started to get like over the past decade, I think business books have actually started to get a lot more about the human aspects of, of leadership and emotional IQ, um, I think is a great way to describe it. Um, but then when 20th summer of 2020 happened, it was just like a total like, um, reorientation of my, of my priorities. Um, and I really started reading, uh, Actually, I started reading a lot more novels, um, and particularly novels by um, Black and Indigenous authors, um, and uh, and then later um, novels and, and memoirs by autistic and, and neurodivergent uh, people, um, and just really trying to get a different perspective on life, and just try and figure out like how was I so oblivious to all of this like really bad stuff that's happening in our society or just to, to how much a lot of other people who are in a similar place in life that I am, how much they have to deal with that I don't have to deal with. Um, and that led me to, um, to a lot of self-reflection. And then it really led me to realizing like how much of myself I actually um, sort of hide uh, in a lot of context or how much time I spend pretending to um, enjoy myself when I'm not really enjoying myself or how many <laughs> kind of things I, I do to go through what I think people want me to do or what is expected of me versus what my intuition is or what I think is what I want to do or, or that kind of thing. And, you know, to a certain extent, we all got to do things that, that we don't like to do. But but I realized that there was something deeper going on. 
and that I had been fundamentally sort of suppressing a lot of things about myself that I had learned how to suppress. I mean, it's funny. I, you know, started talking about my first college experience where I was just so awkward and like, (laughs) it was so hard for me to, to, to understand other people and to articulate how I felt and to just, you know, I really felt like I was in survival mode. And in retrospect, it makes perfect sense because, you know, as an autistic person, I didn't, I didn't know that that's what was going on, but you know, it, it really was just this bizarre experience that was very, very hard for me to navigate. Um, and then I kind of see my life from then up until I started to have success in my career at Red Hat as like learning how to be normal is the way I the way I kind of thought of it. So I kind of pick up on the cues. OK, when I do that, people think it's weird. So I'm going to not do that anymore. <laughs> um, gonna, you know, when I say that kind of thing, it doesn't go over well. So let me, you know, kind of learn how to like you know, squeeze my, <laughs> squeeze that area between your, between your thumb and your, and your finger, uh, when you feel like, you know, to kind of stop yourself from, from, you know, kind of, kind of, how can I like alert myself that like, Oh, you know, you're, you're doing it again. Um, you know, hold on. Um, and, uh, and literally just learning how to, okay. You know, when somebody says, how are you, you say, fine, thanks. Um, how are you? Uh, even if it doesn't make any sense to you to, to say that at all. Um, so there was a whole number of things that I literally was just learning, like sort of a checklist of, okay, in this situation, do this, in this situation, do this. And I actually got really good at that, uh, in, in terms of just figuring out what's the right thing to say at the right time to the right people, um, to make this certain impression that will lead to a certain thing. Um, and I really feel like that was a big part of my, uh, career success once I, I really f- started to figure that stuff out. So then when I when I sort of had this 2020 experience and was going through this diagnostic process, it's a really, it's a lot to unwind. Um, and, and there's a lot of deep layers to how, how deep that stuff is um, and how hard it is to, to walk back from it. Um, and so, so that's been sort of what I've been going through, but in doing that, it's made me much more empathetic to people who are divergent from the majority group in in other ways. Don't have the ability to hide it, right? So, so I've got I've got a difference about me that I can easily hide because you know at the end of the day, I'm I'm a heterosexual white man. You know, I'm I'm. I can blend in, right? Um, and there's a lot of people who who I think do mask, but it doesn't necessarily have the same effect. And and in in talking to people from other communities of of diverse um, of people of diverse backgrounds, I have found that this idea of masking is very common. It's a very common thread. Um, and I think the reason it's so common among neurodivergent people is because it's like we we can really um, transform ourselves because uh, people don't you know I, you know people don't when they first see me they see 
a straight cisgendered white man. They don't see um, an autistic person. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of, of different ways people can mask. Um, but I just, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with this now, but it's just like, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's like a very layered, very layered, very complex thing. Yeah. Well, you, you've touched on a, a lot, you covered a lot of ground really quickly. And, and one of the, the key things that was uh, a new concept, I understood it for what it was, but until it had a kind of a name and I did a little bit more researching, I didn't realize to what extent people go. And you said masking, and that's where you hide your natural behaviors, tendencies to, to mirror those more of, uh, I guess, standard or accepted society or wherever you happen to find yourself at the time, right? Yeah. 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 So I was going to say, something that really surprised me was we um, we did, oh my goodness, it was like two weeks ago, there was a, um, a call, I think it was like one of the hour-long calls, it was about, I think we had a speaker on uh, neurodiversity and things like that, and they were talking, and they were talking about how sometimes things that are, you know, for neurotypical folks that are just easy and obvious and, you know, just commonplace can be so mysterious for people that are neurodivergent or super um, stress-filled or anxiety-ridden. Somebody gave uh, an example of doing the laundry, that they just get filled with anxiety at the thought of how to do their laundry. Or, or somebody said that whenever they get their mail, sometimes an envelope will sit on their counter for two weeks because it gives them so much anxiety. Another one that really astounded me was they said, I can't order delivery food. Uh, because it gives me so much anxiety to think the delivery guy might ring the doorbell, you know, and it's just, to me that like clicked some switches in my brain. That's like, you know, things that I just take for granted, like opening a letter, doing the laundry can be a mountain for somebody else to climb. And it just, it, it had never, it had never made sense to me in such a way until I, I heard those stories and uh, I knew it to be true, but until I heard those like tangible examples, I mean, goodness, that really, that hit me hard in a way I, I hadn't anticipated. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of goes yeah. hand in hand with masking, right? Totally. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny you, you mentioned those examples. So like, I'm really glad that, that you went to that talk and, and, you know, to your earlier question that I think I got completely sidetracked from, you know, the fact that we had that talk at Red Hat uh, is, is, I think, a really big deal um, that, you know, people were really supportive of in the neuro, we, we, we put that on as, as the neurodiversity community and the company was really supportive of it. And then a lot of people came, right? Hundreds and hundreds of people came and, and it was very well received. So I think that, that indicates that I, I think we're, we're on a very good path here. Um, but yeah, I, I resonate with all of those things. <laughs> and and the, the amazing thing about the neurodiversity community we have is people share stories like that all the time. And nobody thinks it's, you know, weird. It's like, you know, literally in our in our chat room uh, last week, people were giving tips about like how to make doing laundry less, less stressful. Um, and it, it is interesting that those are exactly the kinds of things that I think a lot of people share those those anxieties in, in the neuro 
divergent community. But those are the kinds of things that, you know, I think most people would never want anyone else to know about, right? And mm. so it's like it's you know it's it's easy to hide that stuff um, from everyone but yourself and 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 your spouse probably. Um, but it's it's hard to it's really hard to share it. And so I think the fact that we're at, we're in a place where people are starting to feel comfortable sharing and then other people are saying oh yeah me too let me tell you what works for me with that like here's how i deal with that whole doorbell anxiety thing um is uh that's really powerful and and i think that's helping people you know realize to the the extent that they were masking and the and it's creating this kind of sense of safety where hey maybe it's okay to kind of step out from behind uh, and just be more, be more honest. And instead of like, you know, making up some story, I'm just going to tell people, Hey, I, I'm, I don't want to do this cause it makes me anxious. Um, and, uh, uh, or, you know, here's why I I'm struggling with this idea. Um, and just kind of telling the truth. That's a, that's a pretty revolutionary idea for a lot of people. <laughs> well, you know, when you're talking about you know, all the things that we hide, you know, and, and we all do to some extent or another, but it, you know, it, to me, it's like when you hide something, that's kind of an indication in your brain that I'm doing something wrong or I'm doing something bad. Yeah. You think it kind of feeds, it feeds that little part of your brain that says yeah. something's wrong. Oh yeah. That's one of the most common refrains that I hear. What's wrong with me. And, and I think for people who are undiagnosed, or who don't have a community, I think that's one of the most common things. What is wrong with me? Um, or sort of a, a harsher version of that, of people just really beating themselves up about like, I can't believe how stupid I am or whatever. Um, so yeah, exactly. And that's where, you know, the whole concept of neurodivergence versus being neurotypical it kind of sets up this paradigm that being neurotypical is the right way to be uh, and being neurodivergent is the wrong way to be. And that's really what the neurodiversity movement is trying to change is like, hey, let's not let's get out of that mindset of thinking that one way is right and one way is wrong. And let's really just get into this mindset of one way, you know, that it's just different ways are different. Um, and we don't want to say that one is more appropriate than the other. Um, but historically, I think neurodivergent people have absolutely been taught that explicitly in many cases by teachers uh, and parents that, um, that the way they behave on a fundamental rock level is flawed and they, and they need to learn how to correct it. Uh, and that, that's, uh, that's still happening very actively today, uh, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I've I've heard I've heard things things echoed, um, especially from my kids in school. That mm. um, yeah, it seems like the kids, as far as acceptance, are far ahead of the teachers, which is not traditionally what you would think about kids. They're usually very unaccepting, uh, but I think at least yeah. towards high school nowadays, it's it's becoming more the place, which gives me mm. hope. Gives me gives me definite yeah, hope. definitely. But you were also talking about, I mean, that's, 
it's a coin, right? The idea that if I hide things, I'm just be doing something bad. Well, the other side of that coin is those stories, um, how heavily they impacted me. Like, um, I've learned to be a more empathetic person, right? So I, I hear these stories and I, I genuinely can feel uh, things from them. And the idea that you sharing that has entirely, or those folks, those kind folks that were nice enough to, to put that stuff out there, exposing themselves, um, has entirely changed the way I think and feel. And I know it's not their job. It's not, you know, this burden placed upon them to educate everybody else, right? But um, I feel like those stories, that bit of bravery has made me a better human. And I like to think that that bravery, you coming on here is going to make at least two other better humans, right? At least two other people are going to hear this and they're probably going to be better for it. So uh, it's definitely, I, I see why people would hide it, but I celebrate the courage because I always want to be better. And when people take the risk, I really appreciate it for what it is. That's really cool. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that because I, you know, I mean, I think that's the absolute hope <laughs> that people would come away with the, with the feelings that you came away with. And I have no idea, um, you know, how common that is. Like, I don't know how many people were on that call and just thinking like, gosh, this is a bunch of weirdos, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, or how many people thought, Hey, that, I'm not yeah. alone. Yeah. The fact that it affected you like that and that, and that you're consciously thinking about it, that's, that's really amazing. Uh, so, I mean, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it feels really, it feels really exciting to, to hear that. And I think that's, I think that's really that kind of reaction I think is, is really the reason that I want to, um, you know, use whatever, whatever platform I have. And I, you know, I don't think my platform is very big, but within the tiny little world of Red Hat, I, I have a little bit of a platform and, uh, in my little corner of LinkedIn, you know, and so I, I want to, uh, you know, I, I want to, I want to reach people in that way. And, and if, uh, and yeah, like to your point, like maybe it's only one or two people, but you know, that's something. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like to look at this through the lens of, I would assume I'm neurotypical, um, ish. <laughs> We're all different. Right. But um, I also, it makes me look back at when I was a manager and it just makes me think, I bet you I could have, I mean, I know I could have been better, right? I could have done better, but I don't know what I don't know. It's one of those things. And the fact that I'm discovering this stuff now gives me the opportunity to be better. So it makes me think of like managers, like if you could give them some strategies and, um, there's, there's one, I have a quote. So I've read a couple of your articles are really well done. Um, they're not too long a read. Most of them are 15 minutes max. And so it's, you know, it's, it's not a huge investment in time, but there's, there's good nuggets. I think there's, there's really good nuggets in there. So I would say if there were some strategies you would give to managers, right? Uh, maybe they're neurotypical. Um, I know you already gave one, uh, or two actually like what managers could do to sort of work with people. And I, I liked how you said, um, don't just save some of this stuff for neurodiverse people you know, use these strategies on everybody because yeah. honestly, when I heard them, I was like, yeah, they're actually really good. So uh, if you could give us a couple more, I was just curious what you would have to say about that. 
Yeah, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I've actually been asking my my neurodivergent colleagues for you know what they would like to see uh, as well. And I I think the first thing is really what you just said is that I I do think that managers have to adopt tactics that create better acceptance and accommodation of neurodivergent people. But I don't think any of those tactics should be targeted at at neurodivergent people. Mm. And I don't think, in other words, they should be targeted at everybody. And I don't think that any manager should wait until they think they have a neurodivergent person on their team (laughs) or until somebody discloses to them a diagnosis. Because like in your story, that never happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the like to go back to your story, the way I hear that more commonly playing out is when the manager goes to HR to say, hey, I need you to help me develop a performance plan for this person because it's not working out. Um, rather than, so it, it's immediately like a performance problem rather than like a, hmm, I wonder, you know, this person seems really smart and talented. I wonder what we can do differently to help them get this work, you know, through the final stages. And so, so that's, that's the first thing is just, you know, assume that you have neurodivergent people and assume that everyone will benefit from, from the tactics that you employ. Um, and, and I would say a, a couple of big tactics that, that I think about are, are one is absolutely curiosity is we we are very quick to judgment and i think especially in a a for-profit corporation that you know has high expectations and um you know we've all got some big deliverables that are hanging over us you know we, we all feel pressure that making judgments about productivity or making assumptions about what's causing a performance problem is very, very common. So the first thing I'd say is if you're feeling a judgment, if you're feeling that sense of judgment, um, or you're feeling like there's a problem, just really try and and switch to curiosity and say, okay, let me try and figure out what's going on here. Let me talk to this person so I can better understand their perspective and that I can better understand how I can support them. So that mindset shift, is really important uh, as, as a first step. The other thing that I think um, I would really encourage people to do is to look at the concept of a social agreement with your team. Um, sometimes this, these are called social contracts. It's a concept that's been around for a long time, but I've just seen it um, getting used a lot more very recently. And, uh, you know, there, there's some good there's some good articles and like toolkits out there to help you do this. But essentially, you just you get the whole team together and you talk through what are the norms and expectations that you all have as a team working together. Um, and the thing is, every team has social norms and expectations, but most of the time they're not explicitly written down and talked about. And so. The problem is there's, you're always gonna, it's what it defaults to is the majority of people are fine with the sort of status quo of how things shake out. And then there's always gonna be a minority of people who um, don't get it. Uh, And they keep like inadvertently violating the norms 
um, and it causes real problems for them. Uh, and so if we sit down and we talk about it and, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, we're going to all agree to raise our hands before we talk in a meeting um, or we're going to all agree that it's OK uh, to have your camera off <laughs> in a meeting um, or we're going to we're going to we're going to help each other understand why we don't want to assume positive intent. Um, this is actually one of the biggest uh, points <laughs> of confusion. Usually when we talk about a social contract, almost every time somebody says, oh, we got to add on there, assume positive intent. And then what I always say is, you know, assuming positive intent is basically excusing bad behavior. Mm. Um, so don't assume positive intent. Don't assume negative intent, but just seek to understand what the intent is. Um, before you make any kind of judgment about it. So, so usually it gives me an opportunity to talk about it when somebody says we should assume positive intent, but whether they say it or not, I say, I usually, in, I usually suggest in a social contract putting in, don't assume intent, but seek to understand intent. Um, and, and that can be, so just things like that, that just kind of say like, you know, let's set the expectations for how we engage with each other. It could be really simple stuff like, you know, I expect people to reply to emails within 24 hours, um, or or it could be, you know, you know, a lot of it's about how we communicate, but it could be also about, you know, making assumptions, how we approach each other, um, you know, how do we clarify who's responsible for what, all kinds of things. So just establishing that social agreement. And there's a bunch of really good examples out there that you can kind of start from. The key to doing that is that everybody has to be present, like in the room physically or virtually. Everyone has, an, has, has to have an opportunity to comment on each item. And then in, in, after you create it, everyone signs it. And so you shouldn't sign it if you don't agree with everything on it. But the idea is that everybody on the team agrees with every single thing on there. And you can think of it as like it's like a page of sticky sticky notes or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So something you said there um, is definitely very close to something I've always said. Um, I never say uh, assume positive intent. I always say don't assume malice, right? Because it could be positive. There could be a positive intent or it could be ignorance. And that could be ignorance of I don't understand the social norms or uh, I didn't grow up in this area. So I don't know, you know, that, you know, this is what people generally do or anything like that. So uh, the, the quote I pulled from one of your articles is default to curiosity. And I really, yeah. I really yeah. like that because um, I've been at a point in my life, my younger career, when I knew everything and I was the smartest guy in the room and yeah. uh, I would say something. And then uh, this only had to happen, I think twice. And then somebody kindly corrected me in front of everyone. And uh, I was like, Oh, uh, maybe I should just approach these things curiously instead of I have the answer. Just start asking questions uh, because I, I've noticed somebody would do something that I didn't expect. Right. Or they stopped in a project. They stopped somewhere. And, you know, you want to like, well, we had this deadline. What's the deal? You want to get mad. But then if you just approach it with curiosity, what happened here? There is a very plausible explanation and oh yeah i was right there with you just somehow i forgot i'm sorry or why are you late today oh i'm on vacation remember uh, you forgot to put it in your calendar you know so 
there's all these things that exist out there and uh, we are fallible. We are human, right? So give yourself, I like to tell my kids, give yourself some wiggle room, right? Don't be definite about anything. You know, leave yourself a little bit of an out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important for people to give themselves wiggle room, Yeah, but you know, to the, to the point about don't, don't assume malice, you know, yes. And, and I think that's like, you know, don't assume negative intent, but at the same time, what I think we all need to understand is that the impact of our actions is more important than the intent. Right. And so, you know, we want to, we want to understand each other's intent, but we also want people to understand the impact that they are having regardless of what their intention is. Right. And so if somebody's, it's like, it's like the, like there's this kind of like legal concept that ignorance of the law is, is not an excuse no, for violating the law. Right. Uh, and so it, it's like, just cause you didn't mean to, to do something hurtful doesn't mean it's okay that you did something hurtful. Right. And I, I think we still have a long way to go on this, to be honest. I see a lot of people apologizing by saying things like, I'm sorry you were hurt by what I said, <laughs> instead of saying, I'm sorry that I hurt you, you know? And so that's where I think we need to, in some cases, especially people in more senior leadership roles, I think in some cases we need to be harder on ourselves and say, you know what, it doesn't matter that I that I didn't have malice, I hurt you and or I offended you and I apologize. Um, but in other cases, you know, when when we are feeling judgmental, we want to exactly we want to default to curiosity and say, okay, I want to understand what's going on here before I like condemn somebody. Yeah. yeah. I usually like to say, you know, kind of the don't assume malice in that. Um, cause if you're assuming somebody meant to hurt you, then you're going to want to react emotionally right there in the moment. And it's take a breath, take a beat. Let's ask yeah. a question. Um, because it, it's, I mean, I don't think it's probably been like, eighth grade since somebody said something to me just trying to hurt my feelings right you know it's like it's been a really right, long yeah. time so it uh, that yeah most likely that's not what's happening i i think the other way i hear people talking about that a lot is to say don't tell yourself stories or or hmm. recognize when you're telling yourself a story right so if you if you're assuming uh malintent uh then you're probably in your head, you probably have a whole story going about why that person <laughs> did what they did and what they did to make, you know, um, and how they're just out to get you and blah, blah, blah. And so that's where when you start telling yourself that story is really a good opportunity to say like, oh, wait a minute, I've got this whole story playing out in my head. And like, I'm just making this all up, you know, like, you got to realize like, you don't know what's in that oh, person's head. Right. You know? And my brain will invent the worst case scenario out of everything. Yeah. You know, totally. so yeah. if I don't, if my mom didn't call me well, when she said she would, obviously she's in the emergency room and on life yeah. support. Yeah. It's like my brain does all kinds of interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what, something else you were talking about, the social contract, um, that sparks something else in my mind. The idea that you have kind of these social norms that sort of everybody agrees to. And I was thinking, um, for me, when I came into my current team as the guy that was on the outside, we didn't really have those established social norms. Like I didn't know, am I okay to like, ask, I mean, I knew I was okay to ask questions in here, but it's like, am I going to be bothering people? Cause it's something I've never wanted to be as like a burden on 
on other yeah. people, which is crazy. Like I won't give myself the grace that I will give a stranger on the street, you know, cause if anybody ever needs something of me, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to help them. And it actually makes me feel good. I, I love helping other people. So I should assume that people are probably okay with that. But like that social norm, like when I started, if they just said, you know, like, Hey, ask any question in here, we're totally happy to help. And, you know, just lay out some of those, like that would have helped um, mm. my anxiety level a little bit and probably, well, I don't know. It's good and bad. It yeah. made me figure out stuff the hard way, um, which makes it stay in my brain better, but it also could have saved me a lot of time and trouble of uh, looking around. So yeah, I, I just, at least looking through that lens, I can see how that would be really helpful, even for if it's not, you know, um, neuro divergent person yeah. or you're not worrying about neurodiversity, just anybody coming in like yeah. that actually is a really good policy that makes sense to me yeah yeah have you ever do you ever listen to krista tippett and her podcast she's uh she she she's a podcaster who does or a radio host who does these really intense philosophical conversations but so her her show is on national public radio but she has a podcast version where it's the unedited conversation and uh the reason i mention is just because what I notice is that the, the tape starts going f when they're doing the sound check. And, and she, she, she always lays out in the beginning what I think of as a little, kind of like a little mini social contract where she just kind of says, these are the kinds of things I'm going to ask about. Here's how I want you to feel. You know, is it okay if I call you by your first name? I mean, you know, it's like these all these little things to just kind of set the parameters of like, let's make sure that we have the same understanding about what we're about to do here. Um, and I think that that's the thing about a social contract. That's kind of a big term, but it could literally take 30 seconds to, to sync on something like that. Like it doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, it can be very, very easy to do. Hmm. That makes me think of, I did this um, Sandler training, which is like sales training. And I sort of peripherally did it. I did get to actually do it. But one of the things they talked about was an upfront contract for every conversation. At the beginning, you say, this is what we're going to talk about. This is the outcome we're looking for. And this is what we're going to do afterwards. Is that okay? So you get everybody to agree upon it. Yeah. So, so that way, you know, it'll run its natural course. And then you're not surprised when I call you tomorrow and say, Hey, please sign this contract or whatever it happens yeah. to be. Yeah. I think that's awesome. That's a super helpful thing for neurodivergent people. Yeah. If, if like, if every meeting started that way, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, one of the things you said uh, that uh, you find to be really helpful that is often missing is in your meeting invites. Cause we get a lot of meeting invites, not having an yeah. agenda in there. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. that what you call that a pet peeve of yours? No, that that's not a pet peeve of mine. I think it's a pet peeve of like most people, uh, definitely most neurodivergent people. Um, that is a, that is another one of my, I guess, in terms of tactics, like, yes, please put an agenda in the meeting <laughs> invite and and invite people to contribute to the agenda as well. Hmm. So, you know, better yet, make the agenda in like a shared document that that people can comment on. Um, it makes such a big difference because, because having meetings, there's kind of two things. One, when the, when the invite comes, you get an invite from someone, you know, something about them. In some cases, you don't know anything about them. And then you look at it and it's just like totally blank. 
a lot of people, their mind will just start reeling about like all those stories, you know, like, oh my God, what's it, what's, what, are, what do they want to talk about? How do I prepare for this? What if they ask me about something that I'm not sure about and I look like an idiot? Um, you know, am I going to get fired? It's like, you know, you go through this whole cycle of things. I just had this experience with, with an HR person who, uh, <laughs> who, who put, uh, who's put a couple of meetings on my calendar without an agenda. And what I do is I just reply and I say, Hey, do you have an agenda for this meeting? Um, because it would just help me understand, you know, how to be prepared for it. Hmm. Um, and you know, if you don't have time to, to structure an agenda for a meeting, then really, I don't think you, you should be taking everyone else's time to have the meeting. Right. I mean, like, you know, if you're going to ask all these people to put in a half hour, an hour, at least like, you know, give them a sense of what you're talking about and what you want to, you know, what's the purpose of this? Why are we doing this? Um, so yeah, that's a huge one actually. And, and when there's an, when there's a structured agenda in a meeting, it's a huge anxiety relief to people. It's just, it's one of the things I hear most commonly as a, as a complaint from my neurodivergent colleagues. Well, I would consider myself fairly neurotypical and I a hundred percent appreciate an agenda, especially as many meetings as we bounce around to, um, yeah. being able to look and quickly like, Oh, just put my brain in the right headspace. Okay. This is the things. And, um, this is because yeah. I always prepare stuff ahead of time, but I might have three customer meetings, uh, a day for like four days straight. And so <laughs> just knowing which pieces I need to like sort of mentally yeah. shift into God, that's so helpful for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever said, God, I wish you would stop putting agendas in your meetings. <laughs> yeah, like, never heard that from anyone. So yeah. yeah, for sure. All right, Sam. Well, believe it or not, we are at time and yeah. I try and be very respectful for time. Like, I, Speaking of pet peeves, that is one of mine. I try and be a very um, tight stickler on time. So uh, cool. to be honest, we I don't even know that I touched any of my notes in there, but we covered a lot of ground. Um, I want to right here at the end, first ask you uh, if you had a specific way you'd want people to get in touch with you, um, interact with you in some way, how would you, what, what's your preferred medium for that? Oh yeah, probably LinkedIn is, is that's probably the only, it's probably shows my generation, but like, yeah, um, it's my, it's Sam FW on, on LinkedIn or, or just search for Sam Knuth and, and uh, that'd be great. I love connecting with people. And, um, you know, just kind of being in network and LinkedIn is where I share stuff and where I find it's easiest for me to connect with people. So, yeah. Okay. Rock and roll. And I, I've noticed, uh, on LinkedIn, you do a lot of article writing in there. So yeah, I've seen, yeah I mean, you're, you're very prolific on all of that stuff. Uh, it looks like you're always looking for community engagement. I think we all are. Right. So you put something totally. out there so that other people will see it and appreciate exactly. it. Exactly. Um, definitely reach out there. Well, I, all I can say is um, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Just when people give you their time, it is absolute gift, especially as busy as we all stay these days. And I, uh, you gave me everything I could have asked of you, which was to be open and honest. And I know that can be dangerous, but as you said, I don't give a damn anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. Likewise, I really appreciate your time. I, I appreciate the opportunity um, and the interest and, uh, and yeah, I hope it's, I hope it's useful and, and interesting for someone. Always, always keep lighting up those people one at a time. All right, let me hit stop. Real quick.